get excited about it. The other thing I want to do today is I want to tell you what discipleship is and uh, what it's not, and hopefully I can give you some practical ideas on how we can disciple. And the third thing is, is I'm hoping the Holy Spirit would use some of, would use this message to uh, encourage some of us to sign up for VBS because I have a very very uh, I think uh, very very uh, huge passion in my heart for VBS. Uh, so that, that's what we're, what we're doing today, and we're going to do it by looking at the Great Commission. So if you would turn to me with Matthew 28, and we'll look at verses 19 to 20. Um, actually, why don't we all say it together uh, on the count of three. One, two, three. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Let's pray. Father, as we come together today, we thank you that we are here, and we pray that you would help us um, gain a passion and an understanding for your word today. That you would help me speak clearly and uh, execute the word correctly. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to hit the next slide for me there. Uh, whenever uh, we take a fam family on a vacation, uh, we normally go to Orlando. Does anyone want to take a guess why I take my family to Orlando? No, it's not Disney World. Like, Disney World, listen guys, Disney World is costing your kids your college education, so I don't go there as much. My favorite place to go to in Orlando is actually to see this thing. Does anyone know what it is? This is the Saturn V rocket. And it is one of my favorite things to see on display. I love going to the Kennedy Space Center and seeing this thing. This thing is massive. It stands at 363 feet tall. It is 60 feet uh, taller than the Statue of Liberty. And although there was a total of 13 versions of this rocket, this is one of only three remaining in the United States. And you truly do not appreciate the sheer mechanics and power until you are standing underneath it which you could actually see in the next picture, okay. going forward. This, by definition, is one of, if not the most powerful inventions ever created in human history, right up until now, actually. And it is, it is and you know why I like it so much? It's a testimony to seeing an impossible mission come true. My dad recently came to visit me, and he was born about 1957, and I remember him telling me that my grandpa, when he was still alive, thought that space travel was nothing more than science fiction, a pure fantasy world in the world of Flash Gordon. Does anyone remember those comic books? Yes. Well, the year was 1962, and fantasy took a turn for reality when a man took a stage at the Risers in the university in a university in Houston, Texas. 
and he began to speak and to envision space travel as reality. The speaker boldly proclaimed that in 10 years from his speech, the U.S. would land a spaceship on the moon. Does anybody know who that, name, that leader was? It was John F. Kennedy. Sorry. He was casting a vision that would impact an entire nation. In one speech, he would redirect the hopes and the dreams and the energies of an entire nation. It's quite the feat, actually, if you think about the time and the technology. And I was just wondering, just what does one do to cast a vision for the entire nation? Well, it starts by clearly defining a mission. Missions is, uh, or a mission, if you want to hit the next slide for me, I don't know if they have it, is the idea of sending people out to accept or to uh, accomplish a specific task or assignment. Okay? President Kennedy was not only calling the U.S. to establish the space program, but he clearly defined the target of the goal of where they would go. Where would they go, church? Boom. And as every great mission, he established a very clear timeline. He gave them ten years. I hope you can see the irony in this. It's ironic because it was totally impossible for the time. They neither had the science, which is the knowledge, or they had the technology to pull it off. Either one wasn't there. They literally had to design new materials that had never been existed in the course of human history to help the rocket withstand the heat where they were going. They had to invent new ways of math, which, and that is so crazy to think about. What was impossible became a reality just seven years after that speech was taken. You want to know what the mind-blowing truth about that is? Is that NASA had less technology available to them than you do in your pocket. Okay? You want to hit the next slide for me there? Oh, I could talk about this the other day. Um, I got to tell you a quick story. Uh, the other day, uh, Liz and I were we came home from church and we did a grocery run at Costco and we drove in and we were in a hurry and we made it all the way into Airdrie and I said, "Hey, babe, did you did you pick up my wallet after church?" She said, "No, I didn't." Oh. Well, that's a problem. And then I looked at our, I looked at the gas gauge. I was riding the E. I was right on empty. So here we are. My wallet's gone. I have very little gas. I'm like, oh, that's okay. Babe, did, did you bring your wallet? She's like, no, I forgot my wallet. So here we are in energy. No gas, no money. And I'm going to have to call somebody from the church to come and pick us up. Because the pastor forgot his wallet. Right? Then I remembered that I pulled out my phone, and what's the one thing you can do with your phone? You can pay for things. You can do a lot with this phone, can't you? You can pay for things, you can send text messages, you can talk to people halfway around the world, you can do so much with this little phone. And the thing about this is, is like I could go on and on and on about the features of this phone. 
and what it can do and the marvels of the technology that would go on. And your reaction to me would be, so what? Right? You want to hit the next slide there for me, like, We are not really that impressed with our phones. Even though our phones can do something more powerful than send a man to the moon. Okay? We're just not that impressed anymore. We go, what's the big deal? I want you to hold that thought for a second and go to the next slide. Because as amazing as the moon is, it pales in comparison to the vision and mission given by a leader much, much earlier. Jesus cast a vision that was bigger and more complicated than sending men to the moon. He cast a vision that would change the entire world, a vision rooted in love, not war, of grace, not legalism. Do you know where that vision is? I just read it. <laughs> Let me read it to you one more time if you want to hit the next slide. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the central vision statement of the church, of every church. You want to know what every purpose and mission of every church is? That is, to go and make disciples in 35 words or less, in the size of a tweet, those 35 words became the marching orders for the disciples that sent every single one of them except for one to their death. Those 35 words became literally the marching orders for hundreds of millions of Christians over the last 2,000 years. Those words have sent many to places far and away and as hostile as maybe the moon itself, crossing mountain barriers, reefs, rivers, valleys, Vast oceans with foul smells, strange cultures, and strange customs that made no sense, all in an effort to love the people and to show them about Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Thank you. Oh, nice. But you want to know what the sad idea is? Is that I think in church, our sadly, our response to this world-changing vision is far too often no different than our responses to our cell phones. We're just not that impressed anymore with it. What's the big deal, Pastor dear? We've heard this stuff before. This is nothing new. I've heard that hundreds of times. Okay? And if the truth were known... I would render to you today that a significant number of people in church today are bored out of their brains because we don't care about the Great Commission anymore. Have you ever come to church and just felt like you're not getting anything out of it? That it's boring, that you do the same thing? Barna recently conducted a study of uh, the, the, the church in the United States about missions, social justice, and all that kind of thing. And they ask this question is, have, uh, have you heard of the Great Commission? And sadly, of all the people who went to church in the United States, 
only 17% of people who attended church could say that they both heard of the Great Commission and could tell you what it means. That's really, really sad. 51% said that they were able, that they have heard of, heard of it, uh, or have heard of it at all, and 25% said, I've heard the term, but I don't necessarily know what it remembers. We don't believe in the Great Commission anymore. We are bored at church, and what winds up happening is that you come to church, and you hear me, and you just kind of go over the same thing time and time and time again. again. All you, and you just kind of wonder, is this going to be one of Pastor Dan's long sermons or one of his short ones, right? I want to tell you something, that if you are on fire for God, if you love God, then you will become more inspired about this vision than people were over Kennedy's. Because everything past that wall right now is standing against you. And I believe that we need to talk about the Great Commission because our churches need fresh vision and fresh fire for the Great Commission. And so what I'm at, hoping today is that the Holy Spirit reignites the passion in not only our church, but in every church today that we need some vision and some shaking and some, some movement on the Great Commission. We need fresh passion and a fresh sense of vision not for what we've done in the past, even though that's good, but for what God can do and wants to do in the church today. We are needing some shaking because here's what happens. And this isn't a slap to any church, but far too often, those, there are churches, followers of Christ fall into patterns, and we fall into a cycle of getting up and going to work and having our lunch break. And then going to work again, and then doing whatever we do in the evening, and we, and then church actually becomes a part of that, and we can get so comfortable in our ruts and our cycles. And I'm just thinking that we need to remember that if we are ever bored, that the Great Commission is never bored. Amen. And that if you want to be church to be excited in place, I would encourage you to be a person that is on fire and excited. About the idea about going into disciples and or going into the nations and making disciples. So, what exactly is the mission that Jesus is sent on? Well, it's really quite simple. You want to read it with me out loud. It is one, two, three, two. Make disciples of all nations. That's right. In one simple phrase, Jesus tells us that the goal of the church of every church is to make disciples, to go out into the world and to do that. Well, what exactly is a disciple? Well, I'm going to give you uh, just the bare bones of what I think it is, because I really believe that over time, the church churches have become developed really elaborate and wordy definitions, and sort of the meaning has got lost in the translation. Because I've always found that sometimes church, some churches do a great job of discipleship and others don't. Because the concept can become a little bit nebulous, complex, and diluted. And as a result, we don't know how to do it or what it is. While there are many effective ways to disciple someone, I want to just provide to you 
a simple way of doing it, and that is simply this, is that a disciple, by asking two questions, what is a disciple and how do we disciple others? <clears throat> and so what I just want to say is the bare bones definition of a disciple is someone who follows the teachings of another. Does everyone get that? We all understand that. That's not a hard concept to understand. I think we all get it. When we talk about it in relationship to Jesus, a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus or obeys Jesus. Okay? That, at the core, is what it is. Okay? So then the question then becomes is, how do we disciple other people? Okay? And to do that, I want to look at the text very carefully for you, because the text actually tells us what to do. It says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So that's the idea of go therefore and go, get out, share, evangelize, go out, share your faith, tell people. And then it tells us to baptize them in the name of God the Father, God, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So you all know what baptism is, is that baptism is an outward symbol or sign that we do to, take, to show and to signify something that has already inwardly happened in our heart. It's a public declaration of our faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't save us by itself, but it is this public kind of like rally point, this kind of like microphone spot, if you will, where you say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. But then in verse 20 it says, after you baptize them, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Another translation, the NLT and the NIV put it this way in verse 20, teach these new disciples to what? Obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always to the end, the end of the age. So helping people disciple, discipleship is really this, is teaching people to obey, or maybe a better way to say that or would be to follow through with everything that Jesus taught. Okay? Discipleship is not teaching people everything that Jesus taught. I want you to listen to what John Piper said about this. It's very clear. He said this. What John Piper said about the Great Commission. Notice that the Great Commission is not teaching them all I commanded you. That would be easy. You can tell a parrot to do that, and it can get it to repeat back to you. You can teach people all that Jesus commanded, but that is not what uh, Jesus said to do. Teaching, everyone, teaching each other everything that Jesus taught is not all-encompassing of discipleship. Discipleship, according to Jesus, is teaching people to obey or follow through with it. It's to help other Christians follow through on what the Word is asking him, and that is a whole other thing, right? That is a whole other thing because now you've got to get to their gut. You, you've got to get to their soul. You've got to get to what uh, many Bible scholars in the past have said. You've got to get their, to their affections. You've got to get to the heart stuff. Discipleship means that you now have to dig down into their very soul. You have to understand that the human heart and just not tell them you just discipleship friends includes 
teaching them everything that Jesus taught. But it's not limited to that. You have to get deeper and, and dig deeper. And the reason for that is because your gut is stronger than your head. Okay? Your heart and your feelings, although you think your head is stronger, are actually your affections, your emotions, your heart, your gut, your intuition, whatever you want to call it, is a stronger driving force than your knowledge. Okay? Let me give you an example of what I mean by this. During 9-11, so September, uh, September 11th, a whole bunch of people feared flying. So after every, all the planes went back into the, year, the air, more people flew, even though statistically it was safer than driving your car. We all know that. You've heard, probably heard that statistic before. Like, here's what happened, and I don't know exactly how they figured this out, but here's what happened. They estimated that over 100,000 people died more because they drove than they chose to fly, when they have the option. Now, if you take all that data in the world and all that logic, that tells you that flying is safer, but in your gut there's something that says that it's not. Your gut is more powerful than your brain. That's one way when I sit down and I do something like premarital counseling, I get like these really weird reactions. So I have a, a premarital, uh, I do premarital counseling, and one on an occasion there was an, an example where I said, "Hey, you guys should not be together. You're, you're not. Or you should at least wait to marry." And the guy, they both pull away and they say, listen, I know that our relationship is a mess, but here's the deal. They're very attractive. And all of a sudden, I'm not dealing with logic anymore. I'm, not, I'm dealing with things like affections and feelings. And I'm dealing with, again, I'm dealing with something more powerful than reason. Now, I want you to apply that to discipleship. And you have people that say, I don't care what the data says, I'm not going to fly. I don't care about the counseling, I'm still going to marry them because they're attractive. I don't care what Jesus says, I'm going to do something else. It's at that level that you have to disciple. Because your gut is the strongest thing about you, or your heart. That's why when you look at church, it's not enough just to... Tell people what Jesus said. You have to encourage them. You have to be their cheerleader. You have to be in their corner and say, Hey, this, this is what Jesus said. How can I help you uh, with it? Do you need prayer? Do you need accountability? What do you need? Discipleship is not limited to teaching everything that Jesus taught. Yet most churches in the West limit themselves, their discipleship to only teaching what Jesus taught. So the idea is, is that when you go to church and you are discipled, discipled is only hearing what Jesus said, and that's nothing, nothing else. But that extra step, that encouraging or helping people to follow through, isn't there. And as a result, we have a crisis going on on our hands right now. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a pastor named Jim Cimbala. He is a pastor down in the States, very old pastor at this point in his life, been doing it for decades. Right before the pandemic, he wrote a book called Strong Through the Storm, 
kind of along the lines of thriving in Babylon. And this is what he says about the state of the American church. He says, I believe that the followers of Jesus in America are on the cusp of something horrible. I and many others, and he means pastors, see early warning signs. And then he goes on to talk about what they are. He says, overall, attendance in churches in a rapid decline. Churches getting smaller and older faster. And I would argue that COVID has accelerated that process. Citing Barnai, he went on to go say that personal transformation in church is rarely seen. Baptisms in 2020 fell, 20, or 2012 have been at the lowest point in the United States since 1948. And then when surveyed, 46% of people who attended church said that their lives had not changed at all since going to church. That right there makes me want to quit. Because I feel like I'd be wasting my time. He also cites that biblical literacy is at a low, at all time low. Is that a generation ago, so maybe the baby boomers, or Generation X for that matter, knew their Bibles better, and could cite the stories better, and could know where their Bibles more often than this current generation does. And it's all pointing to this idea, I believe, that we are, that we have not as a whole discipled our well, that we've let our discipleship just stay at the idea of teaching people. If we teach people the right things, they will do the right things. But if you're a parent, you know that's not true, right? Because you wouldn't keep repeating yourself if you only had to, if you, if they, if that were true. So let me give you a, a few examples of where to start, and then I want to issue a challenge for you. Where do you start? Well, I think you earn the right to pour in. If you want to disciple somebody, especially today, you are not entitled, you're allowed. And I know this from first-hand experience, my, my title is pastor, okay? And my rights that should give me the authority to disciple you, but not, all, not every time if someone hears the word pastor, they say, I know that he's a pastor, but maybe he's not my pastor. In other words, I'm not going to let him into my heart. And in order to do that, I think you have to disciple like Jesus. So when Jesus says the Great Commission, and he's saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, you'll notice something, is that he didn't say, do X, Y, and Z, and you know what he did? The disciples knew what he meant when he said, go make disciples, because they had been with him for three years. And he's essentially saying to them, do what I did with you for those three years, okay? So what did Jesus do with the disciples and everybody that he was with? Well, he had built relationship with the disciples. He loved the disciples. He did life with them. He ate with them. He ate with the sinners. Okay? He prayed with and for the disciples. And he taught the people. And I would actually say that that is the beginning place of where you and I disciple, is we love people, we teach people about Jesus, and we pray for them, just on a general sense. Okay? That should be, that should be, every church should be doing that at some level. Loving people, praying for people, and teaching people. Okay? And then, here's what I would say to you. 
is that if you want to disciple, all disciple, in order for discipleship to work, all Christians need a crew. Do you know what I mean by a crew? Yeah, people on a boat. People on a boat. No. <laughs> you need a small group. You need something smaller than the church service. Okay? Because the church service can't do everything. Uh, it can help in the discipleship process, but it can't function and do everything that the discipleship process should do. Right? So a, disciple, so a small group could be anything. It could be a Bible study. It could be a marriage mentoring relationship where you take, where you get together with another couple and you take principles in the Word of God and you apply them to your marriage. We do that, by the way. If you want to talk, if you want to, if you want someone to, if you're interested in something that I'm in a vineyard of people that you want to talk to, okay? That's a form of discipleship. It could be a mental relationship where you find yourself with a strong, someone that you really admire and say, hey, could you mentor me? It could be an accountability relationship. It could be a small group. But the idea is, is that it's a smaller group of Christians that you can open up your heart to in some way, okay? And no matter what form it takes, uh, whether it's a Bible study or a marriage mentor relationship or a mentor relationship, all must focus on helping each other follow through with the convictions that God has placed in our lives. That's the difference between just having a Bible study where you know something, where you, knowledge is imparted to you, versus discipleship. It's something where you're coming along and saying, how can I encourage you to follow through with whatever God is convicting and convicting placing on your lives. So, for example, I would say this, okay? Is that if you were to do it on an individual level, I would just ask three questions. And that is, what has God been teaching you through the Bible? What have you done about it? What happened? Or, why haven't you done anything about it if you have That's a good starting place to make. And wherever the hang-up is, this is how you decide, okay? Wherever the hang-up is in one of those three questions, that's where you come along and help, okay? So what I mean is this. Suppose, suppose for example, that you are with somebody and you're asking the question, what has God been teaching you, or when was the last time God is speaking to you, or well, what are you learning through your Bible, Right? And they answer to you, I'm not really sure, um, I haven't really been speaking with them. And here's what I would, I haven't really been reading the Word, I don't really hear God's voice. Well, that's where you would start. I would say, work with them through what it means to hear God's voice. The truth is, is that God is talking all the time to us. I would argue that His Holy Spirit is speaking to us, is normative, so teach people to listen if they can't figure it out. And the primary place to start listening to God is in the Bible, right? Because God always speaks through the Bible. In this case, I would walk them through the different kind of Bible lessons that they've been hearing and asking where their hearts are with it. And uh, if they haven't been asking that question, I'd ask them how often, how often do they devote themselves to studying the Word, right? And so here was, here's what happens here. Here's what I've come across is that sometimes, hey, you know, how is your relationship with God doing? What are you reading in the Word? And, you know, the, the response that I will hear most often is, um, 
I, I need to read the Bible more. I'm not reading it enough. I'm not getting in the Word, word enough, right? And so if that's where the struggle is, that's where you help them. If, if, they're, if you would ask them, here's what I would say. If you don't have enough time to read the Bible, the question that I would ask, and I would do this in a non-condemning tone, because it's going to sound pretty harsh, is this. Okay, I'm going to pick on Elizabeth, because I can. Maybe Elizabeth can pick on me. And I would ask, Elizabeth would ask me, if you haven't had enough time to read your Bible this week, what did you make more important than spending time with God? And then I would push for an answer, right? Because here's, here's why that question is important, okay? If it happens once in a while, I can understand that life gets in the way. We all have things that happen. But if you are looking, if you are asking that question and the regular, and you are seeing a regular pattern, pattern you've just identified an idol, right? And an idol is uh, something that takes place of the most importance in your life, usurping God's rightful role. And you can encourage and then challenge them by asking the question, do you think spending time on Netflix, do you think work, do you think family has become more important to you than God thinks it should be? Do you see how that works? The discipleship question. Is you're just coming along and you're helping someone Follow through with God's Word. Or they may actually tell you, hey, listen, I've been through God's Word, and this is what God is sharing with him. This is a really cool verse. Grace was sharing something today in Sunday school, right? So the follow-up question would be, what have you done about it, right? And that's an important question to ask. What's the action step that you're going to take to deal with it? And, and the, important, the reason that's important is because I think that's where most of us fall, fall, fall through. Perhaps the perhaps it's a perhaps the reason they haven't followed through is they're not really sure what it looks like. How do I how do I apply the scripture to my life? Maybe you can help them brainstorm. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they don't want to give up something. Maybe they don't know how. And knowing why helps you come along and say, Hey, let me pray for you. Let me help you. Okay. Now here what if they haven't been convicted or heard from anything from God in a long time? You ever been through that season in your life where you're going through your devos, you're going through church, and it just feels very dry, like you haven't heard anything from him for a while? And you're discipling somebody who's in that kind of season, and you're just like, I'm going through the word, and I don't really feel like there's anything that's convicting, or, you know, I just, I just feel dry. I feel like I'm, I'm not getting anything out of the Pastor Dan's sermons, or dry, you know, all... all Whatever it is, right? And here's what I would say to a person who's in that case. If it's been a really long time since they've had the conviction of God in their heart, I would ask them to keep doing what God said last. So I would ask them to go back to the time where they did feel that they were convicted by God and ask them, what is that that he has been asking you to do? And I would ask them to keep doing it until he says something else. That is the way that I think we should, you can disciple. So that's exactly what all that was. <laughs> yeah. So I believe that if you do that, you will not be born in church. <laughs> if 
Because when you get into people's hard stuff, it becomes, it becomes stressful, it becomes hard, it becomes annoying, it becomes joyful, it becomes great. But the one thing it's not is boring. To disciple, to help go out in the world to evangelize, to share the Great Commission. I believe that the best way for a church to do the Great Commission is for the church to be multi-generational. I really do. That young and old, that uh, affluent and poor, educated and uneducated come together and we are all equal at the foot of the cross and we all help you share, share Jesus. As we conclude today, I want to I wanna challenge us to share the gospel or the Great Commission with the new generation. And I want to be very careful with this because I don't want to pit generation versus generation against each other. Because, you know, everyone in our culture does that, right? Boomers versus millennials. And they say, what is that phrase? Okay, okay, boomer, right? This isn't one of those. But I, I do think I want to share with you just a little bit about how the church in Canada has been doing it, sending the Great Commission to a younger generation. So, uh, for example, so I want to bring this out. This is a list of all the current generations that are currently alive in Canada. I took this from Census Canada. Okay, um, you notice that I highlighted the baby boomer generation. Those are people from ages 56 to 75. Okay, and that generation for a long time has been known as the biggest generation and the most powerful, the most influential generation on the West Coast, or on, on the West, West's history. There's a lot involved in that, and over the years and decades, churches have been doing a really, really, really phenomenal job about uh, sharing or aiming the Great Commission at the baby boomers. But in 2011, baby boomers became made up less than a quarter of all the Canadian population. While at the same time, millennials, and again, this isn't a baby boomer versus millennial thing, I just don't want to make it out to you. There's a reason I'm sharing this. The baby millennials are the generation that accounts for the largest share of the working age population, 33% from age 50, 15 to 64. In, in Alberta, specifically, Millennials outnumber baby boomers. Okay. But here's the crazy thing. In Canada in general, and in the, like I'm painting a broad stroke here, so this isn't always, the tr always true in every situation. Baby boomers make up the vast majority of Christians that go to church than all the younger generations. And in some cases, all the younger generations combined. So you take all the people who are baby boomers, and you put them on one side of the church, and you put everyone younger than that on the other side of the church, and you would still have the, the greatest population of, would be the baby boomers, okay? Which means, th this is the reason why I'm bringing it out, okay? Not to shame anyone, but I, I want to bring this out very clearly, because we were talking about the Great Commission. A youth problem has become a middle-aged problem. If you know what I mean by that. So, I'm 38 years old. I am like the oldest millennial. <laughs> yeah. I'm like on the very, like, I'm on the very cusp of that. Okay? Almost Generation X, if you want. Okay? 
When I grew up in Bible college, in that era of college and career and all that kind of thing, they would have seminars and um, uh, workshops about how to deal with, quote, the millennial problem. The millennial meaning that they were unable to reach young people, this generation for Jesus. They just weren't showing up in church the same way that they used to. They were, they were not there. And so I remember, I remember hearing this, is, is that generally what had happened is, you know, and I can't speak for all churches everywhere, but the consensus among church leaders at the time was, do you know what? It's not a problem. Because when millennials start having kids, they will start coming back to church. And that hasn't happened. Because the church has had a difficulty reaching youth and college age, it's having difficulty reaching the same people at middle age. Okay? So you remember like millennial churches reaching millennials, they're young people. Now the millennials are entering into their 40s and the church still can't reach them. Which means this, this, this is what I'm trying to get at, okay? Is that Generation X, Generation Y, generation, and Generation Z, and Generation Alpha are all, are all generations that the church is having difficulty sharing the Great Commission with. But we're really good at the baby boomers because they make up the majority of the church, and that's great. But if we want to be a multi-generational church, and share the Great Commission, I believe that we must have a fresh passion to aim the Great Commission in new generations. Amen? Amen. We must share Jesus with the new generation. You know, the other day I was, uh, I'm sure many of you have uh, heard about the Three Hills pool party thing and the controversy that that brought. How many have heard of that? Right? Yeah. Well, I was talking with someone about it, and they had mentioned to me, Dan, I feel like if that is happening, I just want to take my family and move them away from all that. To which I responded, where are you going to go? Because the truth of the matter is, is that Three Hills is the community that everyone runs away from that kind of stuff. And it's here. And so I want to share with you that all this stuff, all this scary stuff, all the dark world kind of stuff that we're seeing and how the world seems crazy, the answer is actually not to run away from it, but to turn and face it with the Great Commission, to go out into a new world and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And to be able to say, God loves you, your identity is found in Him, you don't have to worry about figuring it out for yourself, He's figured it out for you. There's grace and love and there's forgiveness. And when you do that, you actually create an environment that's safe for our children. You don't have to worry about that. We have to share the Great Commission in a new generation. And when we don't, when we get bored of it, when you and I say, well, we, we look at the, those words in Scripture and we, we equate our emotional response to that on a cell phone, we get all this weird stuff coming into our culture. And the answer is to share the good, or go out to all the nation and make disciples, to go out to every generation, to the baby boomers, to those older than the baby boomers, to the generation X and Y and Z and Alpha, and whatever letters they make up after that, okay? That we share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that, friends, is why 
I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much to every single person who pours into our children at Manor. So if you're a parent, thank you so much for caring about your kids. Okay? For bringing them to church. Okay? Do you know that most parents don't bring their church, kids to churches anymore? So thank you for making this a priority for them, for saying that you know, the gospel matters. And thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who falls in church. For, for Vicki and for Ivan and for Garth and Colton and Paige and Tammy and Cammy and, uh, oh man, uh, everyone, I'm missing names here, but thank you so much for pouring in. Because I believe that if we are to be people that reach the great commission of Jesus Christ, we must love people's kids well. And here's what I would also say, as I would challenge you as we end today, is that I would really challenge you, encourage you to in some way help out with VBS. And so i, I got to tell you a quick story. I'll tell you two quick stories and then I'll wrap up here. The first is, is that this week... Uh, Christine got together with a few of the moms and she laid out the vision for, for uh, VBS and she said, uh, let's do VBS but then let's, let's have this option for, for extending it the full day to help out moms and, 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 and love kids well and all that kind of thing. And she threw the idea out and the, she was like, tell me what you guys think. And I think, uh, who was it? Who is Rachel? The word that came to mind was ambitious, right? It's ambitious. Because when you look at VBS programs, generally, they don't like doing full-day programs enough for two reasons. Number one, the cost, but number two, the volunteers aren't there, right? And I would really encourage you that if we're going to do this, it could be a great thing for the church, but it would, it's going to require more of us, more time, more prayer, definitely more volunteers, and maybe even more money. The point is, is that we need you. And if you are able to help, I would encourage you that VBS is a great way to live out the Great Commission. Now, you might actually be saying, Dad, we're small. We don't have the resources to do that. And you're right. We are a small church, but you know what I think Jesus would say to us? He would say, you give them something to eat. You guys know the story? This is a story of the 5,000, where the disciples go to Jesus and say, hey, can you uh, disperse the crowd because we don't have anything to eat? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And the disciples say, we don't actually have anything. We have, what, five loaves and two fish? How is that going to go so far among so people? And yet, here's what I think Jesus would say to us, that there is... A great vision, there's, there's something ambitious that we're going to do that's going to require more time and more resources and more prayer than we thought. And I think his answer is, is like, trust me, I will provide. Small churches can do big things for things God too. In closing, I don't know if you've heard about a film lately that... Uh, that had made the rounds in the theaters called Jesus Revolution. It's currently holding the number one and two spots 
for pre-sales being sold in Amazon.com. Surpassing this, John Wick, Ant-Man, and pre-orders for Super Mario Brothers. It also surpassed Top Gun Maverick. If you're not familiar with this movie, this movie chronicles the starting of Calvary Chapel, one of my favorite churches, and a church much, much smaller than Manor. At the beginning of the story, it only had 16 people. And there was, and there was a man there called, uh, his name was Chuck Smith, and my favorite thing about him was, he used to say that he had three years worth of sermons, and when he had finished his three years worth of sermons, he would quit and go to a different church because he had nothing else to say. One day, though, he realized that if I just preached the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I would never run out of stuff to say, he would say. So he started doing that, and he started reaching out to the hippies. And in a matter of years, what wound up happening was the church exploded. It went from 16 to 1,000 to 2,000 to 10,000 in a number of years. Calvary Chapel was just one of many churches that was benefiting from a movement that swept across the nation like a wildfire. It was known as the Jesus People Movement. There were a lot of, some things about that movement were really weird. But it became so popular that in 1971, all themes of drugs and, and, and hippie stuff was replaced by religion and by Jesus himself. It would mark the first time since 1920 that Christianity was considered culturally relevant and it was the biggest outpouring of American teenagers ever seen in the history of the United States. And what was the value of the Jesus People Movement? It's quite interesting if you look at it now. That church, it wasn't just a fad. Calvary Chapel went on to plant over 1,000 church plants since 1970. And a church that was 16 one hundredths the size of ours. And you know what that's cool about, what that tells me about, is that it doesn't matter the size of the church. When it comes to the Great Commission, God can use anyone, at any size, at every level, to do great things for God. So I would encourage you, if God can do that movement with 16 people in a church that is way smaller than ours, then I believe that God can use a VBS program to, to outreach to the county. So my challenge for you today is, if you are bored at church in any way, I encourage you to become a great commissioner. Amen? Amen.